0: You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible.
1: Up until 2020, nearly every interaction Americans had with their doctors took place in a special kind of no place. The doctor's office is a step into blank space, full of machines and disinfected surfaces. It's void of natural sounds, smells, sights. A trip to the doctor is a journey into a kind of liminal space, where the little things that make us human get drowned out in the weird, professional world of science. In March of 2020 all of that started to change.
2: Heightened states of emergency across the nation as a number of coronavirus cases tonight elected officials taking unprecedented measures to keep people safe.
3: Hello there. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well.
1: Within the coronavirus era, doctor's visits have gone virtual, much like nearly every aspect of everyday life. So instead of entering that liminal no space, Telehealth means a patient talks to their doctor right from the epicenter of their personal world. Now, this may be a little bit odd, but uh, are you able to show me your incision? Yes, yes, I can do that. Hold on just one second. And those little things that make us human? They're front (laughs) They are front and center. There's a new intimacy in telehealth between doctor and patient, a peek into real life. And beyond the convenience of taking a checkup from your living room without having to pay for child care or transportation, telehealth is helpful in lots of ways. Take, for example, its ability to connect rural hospitals with nurses or surgeons at huge medical centers during emergencies that don't afford the time to transfer a patient. That's built-in teamwork, support, collaboration. Or the fact that telehealth allows trans people to see their doctor without the often awkward or negative confrontations at a physical office. That's ensured protection, comfort, confidence. Healthcare technology has connected us in ways we wouldn't have imagined possible before. And though telehealth has been around for years, if not decades before COVID-19, the pandemic has everyone talking about it. During this emergency, we've seen a dramatic rise in the use of telehealth. And here are five things to know about telehealth services. First, but, of course. The steady march of technology doesn't stop at doctor-to-patient Zoom calls. IBM's Watson, the technology that beat two humans on Jeopardy! two years ago, may be the technology that helps doctors beat cancer. Most famously, IBM began its venture into telehealth with Watson Health. Combining
0: traditional analytics with the advanced cognitive capabilities of Watson, the ability to learn and over time refine its analysis based on what it is learning.
1: The goal was for Watson, the supercomputer who won Jeopardy! back in 2013, to accumulate all medical information in the world so it could diagnose patients based on their symptoms.
0: To turn this wealth of data
1: into knowledge. Within the first few years of the program, it was clear that Watson wasn't as good of a doctor as everyone had hoped. It expected answers to be clear-cut for the diagnoses to result in a logical order. But our medical system doesn't work that way. In fact, our lives don't really work that way. We are as far from clear-cut as you get. Our medical system reflects that. It's messy and complicated and redundant and laid bare all at once. Could AI ever learn to capture all of that? Could it reflect the intimacy that patients and doctors are building together across the country in this new wave of telehealth appointments? Should we want it to? In this episode, host Nicole Turner-Lee discusses the rise of telehealth and its implications with Ross Friedberg and Niam Yaragi.
0: for joining our Tech Tank podcast. I am Nicole Turner-Lee, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies and Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. It is no secret that our healthcare system is fragmented and in many instances quite broken. President-elect Biden has already announced plans for healthcare reform, suggesting a new public option from the federal government for the uninsured, lowering the age of Medicare eligibility, and expanding the Medicaid program that has traditionally supported low-income families and other vulnerable populations. And these assertions come on the heels of President Trump's attempts to incentivize people to choose the health care that they think they need, and deferring more to the states on health care decisions and encouraging state leaders to identify and mitigate the risk associated with COVID-19. President Trump has done his part to relax the regulatory restrictions that have limited telehealth adoption, which is what we're talking about today. The pandemic has given rise to the use of remote health care, virtual visits to doctors, trying to figure out ways to stay in contact with patients via technology. And with the number of cases on the rise, it is likely that socially distanced measures, along with the distress on local hospitals, will continue to support and advance telehealth services. We now have eligibility codes for remote services, but what we don't have is a sense that telehealth can be fully integrated into the current healthcare system. What we also do not know is the extent to which the current Supreme Court case will dismiss the relevance of these services in their uh, discussions around the ACA and its constitutionality. To discuss these issues, we are pleased to be joined by two distinguished experts, Niamh Yaraad Ghee is a non-resident fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and professor of business technology at the University of Miami. His research is focused on the economics of health information technologies, particularly the business models and policy structures that incentivize transparency, interoperability, and the sharing of health information among patients, providers, payers, and regulators. Ross Friedberg is the chief legal and business affairs officer for Doctor on Demand. Which since the early 2000s has grown from a small startup to the nation's leading virtual care providers, offering access to on demand and scheduled video visits with healthcare professionals via any smartphone, tablet, or computer. And before this, Ross authored a comprehensive guide on navigating the landscape legally, which received the Burton Award for Distinguished Legal Writing. Welcome, Nean and Ross. And Niamh, I apologize for, for badgering your last name, primarily because my New York accent often comes out when I talk to my mother the night before. <laughs> I apologize.
2: No worries. I'm very glad to be here.
0: No, thank you for coming. And, and I know you care about this issue from our time together at Brookings. So Ross, let me start with you. What should we expect from a Biden presidency in terms of healthcare policies overall and how would this approach differ from the current administration in your view?
3: Well, thanks Nicole. That's that's a that's a good question and I certainly have a few thoughts on that. So I think I think first and foremost we're going to see a focus on providing more access through government programs. So finding ways to close gaps in insurance and coverage through Medicare, through Medicaid, and other related government programs will be a focus as well as using um you know to the extent that he can using using the policy levers of the executive branch to to provide further support and energy within the exchanges so you know the exchanges were a big part of the ACA under Obama and and they've continued to persist in a healthy way since then but but they haven't grown substantially and i think many see an opportunity to grow the exchange marketplace, the individual exchange marketplace within the private insurance market to further close gaps in coverage and provide, provide individuals with more options for health insurance, which, as we know, has been a target. Um, you know, in the Trump administration, the exchanges have been a, a target uh, throughout his presidency, and it preceded him with the Republican attacks on the ACA. We're also going to see uh, more energy behind value based care programs. At least that's, that's my prediction. With, um, with more energy within CMS's innovation center to promote ACOs and similar type alternative payment models. And a few other quick things I'm expecting are uh, more investments in the infrastructure for digital health, mainly broadband and other programs to provide individuals with low cost um, access to data. I'm expecting related to that more focus on privacy. More enforcement within privacy, as well as, as just in continued advance of programs to promote interoperability. And the two go hand in hand as the government invests in interoperability and encouraging providers to share more information. They're also going to continue to double down and increase their, their scrutiny enforcement of, of providers on privacy. And I'm, you know, last I would say, you know, with the pandemic and and certainly with Biden's um, you know primary focus on COVID right now. We're expecting to see a lot more investment focused on public health. And I think this will persist after COVID. We'll see, um, and, and there'll be a role for digital health and telehealth in our future public health preparedness and infrastructure improvements. And and lastly, you know, the Trump administration um has has supported telehealth and digital health. It's it's largely been a bipartisan issue, and and we're expecting to see continued support from both parties on advancing digital medicine, telehealth, and the use of technology to improve to improve healthcare.
0: No, these are really great points. Niamh, did you want to add anything?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I agree with everything that Ross said, but I, the way that I would frame it a little bit differently would be that there are two types of things that the uh, Biden's administration has to do. The very first one are the things that they have to do, basically, they, they plan to do. And that, for example, I think most significantly would be, uh, you know, providing the public option on that will lead to more advanced and you know more active, flourished exchanges. Uh, especially, we have some markets in which there is no competition; there's only one uh, insurance provider, and in those certain markets, a public option, which is an insurance provided by the government, would foster competition, which we believe uh, would would reduce the costs of care and increase equality the uh, then there are things that uh, they uh, they have to do even even uh, if they don't uh, plan to do it and I think uh, uh, one of them is uh, as, as Ross said expanding telehealth and digital health and uh, and and focusing on interoperability and uh, and and health information exchange although these things are not directly uh, you know, related to how we're providing care, but I think they are required if we want to have a healthcare system that is uh, manageable and functioning.
0: Do you think, though, Niam, that Biden may go full throttle on universal healthcare access? Do you see any challenges in that?
2: I think the the most important challenge there is uh, is the cost. Uh, you know, when I speak with my friends, primarily from Europe, the first reaction that I receive from them is, no, how come you Americans don't provide people with healthcare as if we, uh, we are not spending enough for that? And then they are all become very surprised when I tell them that per capita, we are spending way more than any other developed country on healthcare. So the issue is not that we don't want to spend the money. I think the issue is that the system that we have is so complicated and designed so bad that uh, the waste is the issue. The money is not the issue. That the way that it's being spent is the issue, and I think universal healthcare. You know, I mean, nobody disagrees with the fact that if you have a country in which everybody has healthcare insurance, you have a better country. You know, I think it's a it's a bipartisan issue. Uh, the issue becomes okay, how are we going to do it? And what are the changes that we have to implement in the current system in order to make sure that we are able to provide that with reasonable cost?
0: Ross, do you have anything input on that in terms of the obstacles to providing something that's much more universal, which is being suggested by President Elect Biden?
3: Well, you know, from from the perspective of being in the industry and working in healthcare, it's it's very hard to change things in healthcare. The status quo forces are strong. And it's it's both on the consumer side and the payer side. You know, we have a country that's used to receiving healthcare a certain way, and um, and that's that's very hard to change. And healthcare is still very local, and so you know, there's only so much that you can do at the national level as well. I think what's made the pandemic, um, you know, so uh, transformative potentially is it's it's the kind of event that has moved the pieces enough in healthcare that we're in this moment where real change is is certainly possible where we can see real reform. But even even in the pandemic right now, we're starting to see some of the status quo forces in healthcare pushing back on some of these changes, right? Like calling into question, how much should we open the door to telehealth? How much should we revise programs around licensure and interoperability and things like that? And so, you know, there's just the changes that that we're talking about here are very big changes and our healthcare system traditionally has resisted even small changes.
0: And that's why it was surprising to the both of you when we saw the pandemic hit, it sort of created these conditions that for decades, we've not been able to move the needle. I mean, I've been working on telehealth since 2009, approximately. And, you know, there have just been so many restrictions to be able to fully utilize it. And here comes the pandemic. And under the Trump administration, We see these waivers on Medicare and Medicaid restrictions. We see incentives for doctors. We see the public health reason, right? Of social distancing, of people going to distressed hospitals or overcrowded clinics in fear of getting the virus. Uh, Doris Matsui, the Congresswoman that sits on the House Energy and Commerce Committee, called one of the silver linings of COVID telehealth. (laughs) What do you think about that proposition? We've titled this podcast as Telehealth Here to Stay. Is this one of those cases where telehealth may actually survive some of the contentiousness that's around healthcare on both sides of the aisle?
2: I think it would. Uh, I think it would, definitely. And uh, as, as Ross was saying, that people are used to receiving healthcare in a certain way. That is absolutely true. And that is one of the reasons that we do not see change. However, because of COVID, we have transformed healthcare delivery uh, so radically that now people are used to receiving care through telehealth in many instances. Uh, And and I think the same forces that resisted the change towards telehealth will be in play to resist the change away from telehealth after the COVID ends. Yeah.
3: Yeah, just to just to build on Nam's points here, it's it's a change that's occurring both with with individuals who are you know the patients and Americans that are using telehealth, but also with doctors and other providers who were very skeptical about it before the pandemic. Every every day there is an article somewhere profiling a physician who's who's surprised by by the capabilities of what you can do and and the way in which a telehealth visit can establish a, a deep trusting relationship. And we've seen this at Doctor on Demand over the years. Once somebody uses the, um, our, our service once, sees one of our physicians, they come back. The, the challenge is, is that first use. And with our providers who are joining usually from a brick and mortar primary care setting, um, they're, they're frequently uh, surprising themselves at, at how robust the platform is. The, the the final point I'll make is is even on the payer side, health plans, commercial health plans, Medicare Advantage plans, we're seeing a shift in thinking. Whereas before the pandemic, telehealth was seen as a supplemental care offering um, that kind of existed on the fringe of a benefit program, and now more and more uh, the plans are looking at telehealth as the front door, as as the vehicle in, and in some cases as as primary care itself, and in fact a doctor on demand. We're working with a number of health plans. We just announced uh, uh, the latest one with Harvard Pilgrim and uh, New England to provide primary care-based services um, via telehealth, primarily uh, to their members. And that's that's a big shift from you know supplemental benefit to a core benefit that's seen as as key in the in the primary care infrastructure.
2: In addition to all the things that Ross said, there is one. Other major change, and I think that is the change of attitude uh, that has led to facilitating the things that were required for a successful telehealth visit. And I give you this example. Uh, We see an explosion of interoperability and even access to patient portals as a result of COVID. Something that, you know, believe it or not, you know, as a part of the meaningful use programs, physicians could qualify for the second stage of meaningful use as long as there was one patient visiting their, tele, uh, their patient portal per year, okay? One access per whole year was enough for them to qualify this criteria. That is how low the bar was. And right now, every single patient that I know is accessing this. And when I speak with CIOs in many different hospitals across the country, they are saying that we are seeing numbers uh, that we never could have imagined in our wildest dreams because uh, you know there is this change in attitude that was a result of the necessity and need. The patients that were very reluctant to go to these telehealth visits now are way more, uh, you know, interested in doing telehealth because of the fear that they had of COVID. And especially the patients that we traditionally thought that would be most reluctant to do it, they were the older patients who are now the most interested because they're most vulnerable to COVID. Right, they're they're more scared of COVID than younger, healthier patients, and they're more inclined to do telehealth. And then that is the change of attitude from the patients. The other thing is the change of attitude from providers. Uh, Interoperability, I think, is a key issue to increase the quality of the telehealth visits. So one of the factors that affects the quality of care during telehealth visits is, is physicians' access to prior health records, because it's much more important. Uh, to to see the full history of the patient now that you are only doing it virtually, and uh, and one of the major uh, obstacles to health information exchange prior to COVID were all political issues. We had the technical capabilities, but there was no will to do it because people and by people I mean healthcare providers were clenching to their healthcare data.
0: I totally agree. I have a seventy plus um, mother who has a rare disease. And it's just so interesting. Her first bout with telehealth, her camera was turned the wrong way, you know, and this was after her reservation around using it. And today, we can't get her to not want to bother her doctor for a virtual visit. I want to be mindful, though, that some of the listeners may not know the actual things that people are doing with telehealth services. So, Ross, let me come to you just real briefly. What kinds of functions and, and of practices are being provisioned through remote visits?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Nicole. And I'll, I'll start with doctor on demand since, since it's what I know best. So, so there you could... Categorize what we do in three broad categories. The first is is just everyday urgent care type issues. So somebody downloads our app and goes through the intake process and then video connects with a physician on demand. It's usually within five minutes. You can you can see a physician from the time you you begin the registration process and and you have a you have a video visit with a physician for conditions like the flu or a sinus infection or a suspected UTI. And more than 90% of the time, the physician can um, resolve your issue or you know, treat you equivalent to an in-person visit and, and achieve the same, the same results. That, that's that's where we started at Doctor on demand back in 2014. But then we evolved into two additional areas. One is behavioral health. So in 2016, we we launched psychiatry and psychology all virtual so you can have virtual visits with a therapist uh, from your home and, and in fact right now that is the fastest growing um area in telehealth at least from our perspective it, the demand we can't keep up with the demand for therapy uh, on our platform and then third and most recently is we've we've learned over the years that a lot of individuals that came to us uh, for episodic issues, you know, urgent care type needs, establish relationships with our physicians. Our physicians are employees of Doctor On Demand, and and these relationships resulted in, in ongoing care in some cases organically. And so we saw a need, largely due to just poor access to primary care in many parts of the country, to provide uh, more longitudinal care. And so now we've built programs at Doctor On Demand that enable individuals to see our physicians on an ongoing basis, not only for urgent care needs like, like a sinus infection or a UTI or a rash, but also to help them manage their chronic care conditions. And so in many of our primary care programs, we'll send devices into your home. We will, uh, there's a care team that supports our physicians, health coaches, diabetes educators, dietitians, and others to help, to help with chronic condition management. There is regular virtual house call visits with, with our physicians and, and, as as Nia mentioned, there's a lot of growing interoperability, so we're able to plug into health records from other places in order to get a full, more holistic picture of our patients and provide uh, full scale primary care. and And we're seeing more and more of that, uh, certainly within commercial markets, and we expect soon government markets as well.
0: That's interesting because, as we all know, you know, telehealth really took a lot of traction and adoption in the mental health services. The fact that we're actually seeing its utilization around primary care, and this is something that we wrote in um, a recent white paper, I think it's fascinating. I think the first time I ever saw telehealth, it was around dermatological services or some kind of secondary service. And now, you know, with COVID, people are basically utilizing telehealth, uh, those, you know, first, I think you call them front door interactions, yeah. which I think is really promising, right? Particularly, you know, as we look at it, I'm going to flip a, a set of questions I want to ask. I want to ask this question next. When We look at health disparities, right? My colleague Rashawn Ray wrote about this, that African-Americans and Hispanics were highly susceptible to the virus um, in ways that it, comp- it was complicated because it interacted with chronic conditions. So they were already medically, you know, um, pretty much compromised by a uh, chronic condition, pulmonary, asthma, respiratory, whatever the case may be. But then they were also medically underserved, right, in terms of access to health care within the proximity of where they live. I'm curious because I've always said this, guys, that telehealth was a promise towards closing some of the health inequities that we see between communities, those who can afford health care and those who cannot. And the fact that 97% or so of African-Americans and Latinos carry computing power within their pockets or purses could also suggest that we can actually get care to them in a much quicker way. Uh, considering that technology has become much more advanced. Niamh, I want to talk about telehealth and its ability to actually address health disparities based on your experiences with these technologies, whether or not you see this as a potential you know, uh, way to cure some of those uh, symptoms that are related to these inequ- economic inequities as well.
2: Absolutely. And the example that I give is uh, Uber and Lyft. Uh, you know, these two platforms were not designed to help uh, remove disparities in labor market. Uh, however, they they ended up doing so. So when you look at, for example, at women's participation in labor market for cat, taxi cab drivers, it was zero percent and now about 50 percent of the drivers and uber and lyft are actually women uh it also helped a lot with uh uh reducing disparities and on how uh how uh Riders were treated you know it 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 is you you're you're from New York, so you know it very well how 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 those disparities worked before before uber and Lyft, and now it is to a much much lesser degree and i think um with with telehealth we would have that although I do not suppose that you know these technologies were designed to achieve that purpose as their main goal, however, as a side effect, they will have that very welcomed and fortunate Uh, result of reducing disparities. And remember, uh, there are very small things that lead to very big changes. Having a simple uh, primary care physician visit may change the quality of uh, life uh, of, of many, many people who otherwise don't have access to that. So when you create this telehealth capability, That I who couldn't see a physician who if I wanted to see a physician, first of all, I didn't have insurance. Or even if I had insurance, I didn't have the, the, you know, transportation means to go see my doctor, you know, for various reasons. And now I have it. That simple 10-minute telehealth visit would have significant consequences in my life because I may be doing things that are really bad. And I have no way of knowing how they're affecting my health. And a primary care physician, especially a good one, can educate me on that. So don't take it lightly. It will have big, big consequences in terms of improving the quality of uh, life for, for, for many, many people. And not only that, you know, I think the most exciting part of it is yet to come. And that is AI, uh, we are uh, already uh, observing advances in AI, which are basically designed to replace routine care. Okay, again, most of the things that we do uh, in in a lot of these telehealth visits for with our primary care physicians could potentially be uh, achieved by uh, a, a robo doc, uh, an AI feature. Uh, which uh, can be scaled up and provided to basically the whole population at virtually no cost and th- through these telehealth uh, uh, ch- channels of delivery and I'm very very excited about that because uh, because it would be like you know providing 80 percent of the things that uh, that we need and then and then we can focus our uh, our resources on providing the remaining, Twenty uh, percent.
0: I agree. I mean, I think when you think about location, when you think about affordability, clearly there's a reduction of you know uh, those expenses, particularly for those that are un- uninsured or underinsured. Ross, what about you in terms of yeah. tax these health disparities? I mean, can we see some progress finally if we yeah. actually were fully utilize telehealth?
3: Yeah, it's a really important topic. You know, I want to start with just what we all know and sometimes overlook, which is how hard it is to get into a physician's office, and even pre-COVID, right? Um, you know, my own personal experience living living in Arlington, Virginia, is is it's I've gone through three primary care physicians since I've been here because practices have moved and closed, and and getting in is usually a month wait, and it usually requires me to take off two or three hours midday because I have to go in. I have to wait for a while. There's usually a lab that I have to get done while I'm there. And and that's that's inc- there's just a lot of steps there to get in. And then you get in and and it's often an underwhelming experience for, you know, multiple reasons, right? Providers um are over overbooked, the EMR uh, gets in the way of the relationship. And and so then even people who go through all those hoops and get in feel um like maybe they didn't they didn't get what they were hoping for and they disengage, right? Now compare that to telehealth, right? Where you can, you know, there's no no all that activation investment is gone, right? There's no transportation that's required. You can see a physician if you have an immediate need in minutes. And um and and it's just and it's affordable. Um, in the case of Dr. on demand, if you don't have insurance, you can still use us. And you can use us anywhere. I mean, we have we have many instances where somebody is is having a visit with us um during their lunch break at At a retail store, they're in their car and they're trying to have a video visit with us, or they're they're at home over the weekend after work hours at night. All of those things just that that have a huge exponential effect on on people being able to access care. And I think it applies across the entire population, including including people in communities where it's hardest to get care, I think especially. And we've seen that anecdotally at Doctor on Demand based on on the the comments we get and the accounts. We unfortunately don't have The data yet, which is something we're working on, to show it definitively that that we really are providing an additional level of access in underserved communities. But but certainly, um, all the signs are pointing to yes on that.
0: Twenty twenty five years ago, I worked in a community in the south side of Chicago where I had a child about the same time as a young woman in which I was um, acquainted with. Both of our children were diagnosed with asthma. I obviously had great primary care and now a child at 18 is pretty much outgrown that respiratory condition. The young woman who was a single parent and under the poverty line, she used her emergency room as the way to actually receive treatment in the absence of a primary care doctor. You know, that's a stress on the system, but it was also something that left her son untreatable. And to this day, he still struggles with asthma as a condition. I mean, I think it's really clear that May offer a low barrier to entry for communities where healthcare is not within their proximity of, um, you know, being able to receive services, but also where cost is a factor. I mean, Ross, for you, it just begs the question: Will medical providers, you know, sort of also buy into this in the long term, even if the conditions stay the same? Will they not want to, you know, still address telehealth if they can get bodies into their offices?
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's an innovator's dilemma, right? Uh, we're we're asking we're asking existing healthcare systems that have operated a certain way for 10, 50, 100 years to completely change their business models and to do so in ways that might in the short term um result in losses. I mean, that's the sort of the problem that we've had over the years with trying to transition from fee for service to value-based care models, is there's, you know, there's this transition period where you might actually lose a little bit before you get to a winning formula. And that's why it's so important from the policy front that that the rules that come down on reimbursing for telehealth and removing barriers uh, do not prevent new entrants from entering the market because so often innovation occurs from the outside in in an industry, not the inside out. And so companies like, like Doctor On Demand and other digital health innovators need to be given a chance to play and compete. Because we need to, you know, have the widest possible net as to where future clinical care innovation will come from. And we can't assume that the existing infrastructure is going to, you know, generate all of the goodness that's that's possible with these new technologies.
0: Doctor on Demand started as a startup, right? Um, and it's right. More, uh, something that is much more nationwide. But I think part of it, Neam, is that it's not so much, and I love the way Ross put it, it's sort of the innovator's dilemma, some of it has to go back to Ross's initial comments around privacy and security. I mean, to actually accelerate the volume for payment. Can you speak to that? I mean, is that something that we need to put in front and center as we go forward or should we lead with the innovation? You know what I mean? Versus yeah. putting out all the possible, you know, uh things that could go wrong?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that's a fantastic question. And and I believe that like any other industry, privacy will emerge to become Uh, the focus only after the technology has been democratized. And uh, I'll tell you what it means. So there is something called the wall of shame on which uh, you can go to Office of Civil Rights at uh, HHS, and there is the list of all healthcare organizations who experienced the breach? Uh, now, as a part of my research, uh, when I, as, as actually, were uh, you know next door uh, at uh, to your office at Brookings, I, I, I reached out to many of these uh, uh, organizations and talked with them about uh, the, the, the the consequences of that breach. And, and we know that it is pretty much uh, uh, nothing. Uh, you know, so like if you're a hospital, you experience a big breach. Uh, you come and said, so what? Why? Because you're not going to lose your business. Uh, you are the dominant provider in your region and patients cannot or will not go anywhere else. Or or even if they could go to other places, the quality of the care that you provide to them is so superior than that, that they say, okay, loss of privacy is a small cost that I am paying in order to receive care at this facility. But when, uh, when we see these changes, when we see these innovations that uh, remove the uh, uh, power of one dominant player in a local market market and democratize it. So now, instead of you know having only one physician that I can go to, or even worse, having one emergency room that I have to go overutilize because I don't have an insurance, Right, There is now 10 different apps that I could use to receive uh, telehealth services. Uh, All of a sudden, my privacy becomes the focus. Why? Because in terms of quality of services and other functionalities, all those 10 apps or 10 providers are the same. So how are they going to distinguish themselves? What is going to be their competitive advantage? privacy. And that is what we are seeing in other technologies right now. The reason that privacy is so dominant in our national discussions as of now is because every other thing is pretty much equal. Uh, you know, There was a time that Facebook was the dominant social media um, platform. And if you wanted to Uh, have your friends in in your circle and communicate with people abroad. You know, Facebook was the only thing that you could use. Now, because it has become uh, so easy to communicate via other platforms, now privacy becomes more important, whereas before it was not that important for you because you didn't have any other choice, or the quality and importance of services provided to you through Facebook were so much that privacy was not even in the in the top priority list of yours, and I think uh, you know, privacy will emerge uh, to to be the core uh, business advantage of of these new uh, forms of healthcare delivery.
0: I think you both have heard me say that, you know, there are some distinctions between telehealth and digital health, right, uh, particularly as we see many more ancillary pro- products come into the marketplace that are many respects complementing what we're actually seeing within the actual patient room. Um, You know, it brings me to another question, because I still want us to keep pushing on this fact, particularly for our listeners, that that this is not an easy subject, right? And telehealth is very much intricately connected to what actually happens with the future of healthcare. It's no secret that the Supreme Court is listening to arguments around the ACA and what the future of it will be, given the uh, concerns about its constitutionality. We've heard Biden say a public option, you know, sort of as a a replacement word for ACA, but There are some provisions for telehealth in the ACA, and I'm curious from the two of you whether or not you think that there'll be an impact on what we think are these growth opportunities of the telehealth space if the ACA is challenged um, by the Supreme Court.
3: Yeah, I can can chime in. I think there's certainly a few things that come to mind at the macro level that, that could have big impacts. I mean, one is there's just a perennial debate about the role of the employer in healthcare. And, you know, right now most um private insurance is is funded by employers and and in fact a lot of the innovation in telehealth has has emerged uh, primarily from or started with employers innovating with with companies like like ours and has sort of radiated out from there but but we have right now we're we're in a you know a recession and there's there's a lot of unemployment and and there's a lot of question about how stable a job is right and and how do we provide in commercial insurance for populations of people um, that aren't that aren't going to be um, in stable long term employment relationships, like gig economy workers, for example, and many others, and you know the exchanges created by the ACA provide provide a good vehicle for that. And you know if we remove the ACA and we remove the exchanges, then there is this void, right? How do you address this growing population of workers that are not? tethered to an employer, and if they are not for very long, or not on a basis of being eligible for benefits. And so that is a big question and um will have huge impacts on on telehealth. I think the other, the other big area of focus for me on the ACA is just one component of the ACA, separate from from coverage, is just the ACA created a foundation for moving toward value-based care. And and how, you know, there's some question as to what what would happen to some of these value-based care initiatives without, if the ACA was, was fully repealed? I guess with that, I'll, I'll, Niamh, I'll let you chime in.
0: Do you think that we could proceed with telehealth given some of this contentiousness around the ACA? Yeah,
2: I think, I think telehealth to a large extent would, would progress and go, for, go forward regardless of what happens to ACA. Uh, you know because there, there are two outcomes. you know either ACA stays or it goes away. If it stays, we have to reduce costs. If it goes away, again, we have to reduce costs and improve the quality. In both both cases, a, the telehealth would be one of the solutions uh, and and I think uh, it would continue.
0: I see that the American Telemedicine Association just released a note to President-elect Biden suggesting that we just keep charting this course forward. And prior to their letter, we saw, you know, bipartisan coalition of of members basically suggest the same thing. I think Senator Schatz actually put out something uh, in the last few months suggesting that we keep the course when it comes to um, telehealth and telemedicine provision. I mean— that's at the federal level, my friends. What about at the state level? Are we gonna see any obstacles at the state level that may prohibit us from moving forward with telehealth services?
3: The the biggest challenge at the state level is is complexity in, yeah. in the general sense that you know telehealth, virtual care transcends borders, but healthcare is still primarily regulated at the local level and behaves according to local customs. So in addition to Laws that are state based on privacy, on what's permitted via telehealth, on telehealth reimbursement. You also have uh, insurance companies that operate in local environments, and, and they operate differently from from state to state. And so, so that complexity, you know, requires um, a lot of capital and expertise to overcome if you want to do telemedicine. And you know that that's certainly a barrier in itself. And, and in our federal system, it's. It's not going to be easy to solve that other than for states to get together and work on uniformity. And so the medical licensure compact is a good example, Um, states getting together and helping uh, improve the pathway for physicians to get licensed in multiple states. It's helped a lot. I mean, there's still a lot of room for improvement, but that's one good example of state cooperation. There have been model laws relating to the practice of telemedicine that some states have adopted that have helped. Uh, to provide clear guidance on what's appropriate and not appropriate via telemedicine in different states. But there are so many issues. Just to give you one other example, Nicole, right. at right. Dr. On Demand, we use nurse practitioners. <clears throat> and the state's uh, regulation of nurse practitioners and what they're allowed to do with or without supervision and how they're supervised varies incredibly, which makes it very difficult to use nurse practitioners uh, across state borders for telehealth. And, you know, that's just one issue with one provider type, but you can see how it just uh, multiplies when you think about other provider types as well.
0: I mean, we also talked about in a paper that we put out for Brookings in partnership with the John Locke Foundation around state parity laws, right? Being one of those areas where we may not be able to see this uniformity around telehealth provisions, primarily because we've operated in somewhat of a patchwork framework when it comes to healthcare. Um, in our discussion, we basically argue that state parity laws, yes, they worked well for a reason. Um and particularly the use of state parity laws during the pandemic to sort of create these eligibility um, codes and reimbursements seem to be sound, but we're also dealing with artificial numbers when it comes to the use because of the aggravated uh, pandemic and the accelerated use of telehealth at the same time. Niamh, I'm thinking about in terms of, you know, your conversation around security and privacy. Uh, we don't have comprehensive federal privacy standards as well in this country. That's a whole nother podcast. Um, but do do you see any challenges with the states and ensuring that we're able to proceed forward with telehealth?
2: I think uh, the major privacy regulation over telehealth will continue to be HIPAA, and uh, and uh, al- although there are a lot of uh, uh, areas where HIPAA is really, to be honest with you, not compatible. Uh, I think one of the major things that we have to do is to revisit that and see how, how we can improve it. And and the, the federal government, as we speak, has created some safe harbors from that in response to the national emergency of COVID. For example, one of the things that they had to do prior to all this uh you know COVID problem was that uh, you know, telehealth visits could only be done through HIPAA certified applications, but uh, you know, I, I had students in my class actually telling me that, "Oh, you know, I, I, I did a telehealth visit with my physicians through FaceTime," uh, <laughs> right. and uh, and uh, how how is that legal? And I said, "Well, because uh, you know, HHS said uh, it's okay. Go ahead. Uh, you don't you don't need to have a HIPAA certified uh, application to do that." and uh, and things like that, I mean, of course, I'm not advocating for the Wild West uh, and, and having a system where nothing is checked and, and allowing everybody to do whatever they want, especially given the importance of uh, privacy. But what I'm advocating for is more thoughtful regulations uh, uh, about, about privacy and having reasonable expectations about security in this area.
0: Well, and that was something that the ATA put in their letter. And I know you both are familiar with when we speak about, you know, different modalities that people access telehealth, right? Or the technology being somewhat agnostic. Because I agree with you, Niamh. I mean, in some cases, you're going to have to use FaceTime or Skype. And in some instances, we saw the approval and eligibility of just simple phone calls to maintain contact with your doctor during the pandemic. I guess for both of you, we're at this really critical moment right now. Um, it's not to say that this virus is going away. We could tell by the numbers increasing across the states uh, in recent days and weeks. The question becomes, and I think you both hit it early on in the conversation, the extent to which we're going to reimagine health care. And we're gonna allow these advances of innovation to sort of become the not necessarily the the wild, wild west, right? But the the norm as opposed to the exception and in how we deliver primary care and secondary care and other supportive services to people that are in need of clinical support. What would be your call, and I'll start with you, Niam, to doctors, um, you know. Doctors, policymakers at the state and federal level, even you know civil society groups that represent patients. What's your call around the continuance of telehealth at this time?
2: I will tell you the exact same thing that my dean told me when I asked him about uh, uh, his opinion to to his advice for 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 the success, and he told me to uh, learn to teach online. Uh, <laughs> right. So I am telling the exact same thing uh, to, to doctors: learn uh, to provide your services through uh, telehealth and uh, and virtually online. Uh, and and to all the policymakers out there, uh, this whether you want it or not, whether you like it or not, this is the future. Uh, and uh, you better side with the future right now and see how you can. Help uh, making it happen even earlier, because otherwise you will be left alone.
0: Mm. Ross, I'll turn it over to you.
3: Yes, yes, I I, I agree one hundred percent. And just to provide an interesting little anecdote that happened to me recently, um, I think helps make the point. We, you know, during this pandemic, we fielded calls from all around the world. Um, as people have seen, you know, services like ours uh, in action more prominently in the news, and including from from Africa. And I was on a call recently um, with some some people in Nigeria, where where there's there's you know a real shortage of healthcare infrastructure in many parts of the country. And and their comment to me was, "Wow, we see telehealth as an opportunity to leapfrog." 20 years of healthcare infrastructure investment that we'd otherwise have to make in this country, building buildings and facilities. Like This is game-changing for our country. And, and that was eye-opening for me, just to get that fresh perspective on just how much room there is to innovate and improve healthcare. And as Neam said, it's the forces are too strong uh, in that direction. I think what we need to be careful of is, is regulating it in ways that send us sideways. And a good example of that, perhaps... Is how we we regulated electronic health records in the early days, uh, with restrictions on on what's what's appropriate and what's not. That in some cases went too far. And, and I I heard one professor say to me once, uh, who I who I know and was recently meeting with, that you know we we basically with EMRs we took the equivalent of the nineteen nineties version of internet search where there's Boolean terms and queries and everything else, and we locked it into place. And prevented the the innovation that led, in the case of search, to the very simple Google interface that we're all familiar with today. Like we we locked things in place that have made EMRs uh, go sideways and, and struggle, right? And we can't do that with telehealth. We have to be very careful to to you know certainly promote standards and and integrity, but also um, flexibility and simplicity, and not over-regulate
0: it. It seems to me that the Biden Harris presidency should probably institute a telehealth. Uh, caucus or some type of advisory committee just to look at this innovation and reimagination of healthcare um if i'm gonna be like a preacher if you think i'm right say amen if you think i'm going in the direction that's wrong just don't say anything
2: <laughs> amen you know, I, I, I totally totally agree and you know one thing that I, I i just remember and i wanted to say at the very beginning is that you know we we over the past years especially during the obama administration led uh, efforts led by various foundations specifically robert wood johnson foundation was on social determinants of health you know we were talking about non directly related to uh, medical care aspects that would have subsequent uh, impact on your overall uh, well-being and healthcare factors, like the neighborhood you live in, the the social uh, social uh, aspects of the neighborhood that you're living in, in, in addition to many other things. And I think you know, with the widespread adoption of telehealth, as it will become a thing, then uh, we should add a digital aspect to those determinants of health. You know? So not only it matters uh, you know, what, uh, how close you are to a grocery sc- uh, store that sells uh, healthy items, it also matters uh, whether or not you can have easy, accessible and affordable uh, broadband connection where you're staying. You know uh, whether you can afford it or not. Whether you would be ab- able to afford a cell phone that has a, a, a viable video camera that enables you to do telehealth and 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 many other services that would soon be available virtually. Uh, and and talking about the things that the Biden administration would potentially need to do and and you very nicely raised this issue of uh, having a having a committee around telehealth i think even more broadly we can have a, we can have a committee around digital uh, determinants of health uh, yeah. and, and and that would encompass telehealth among other other digital things
3: yeah just, just want to make one comment quickly on Nam's point. I mean, in, in, the, in the pharmaceutical world, there's a lot of energy around this idea of real-world evidence, that you need to evaluate drugs and therapies in the real world, not just in labs and offices. And I think you can extend that analogy to telehealth, right? The, the typical doctor's visit is in an office. It's not in the real world, right? With telehealth, you have an opportunity to be in someone's home virtually, and other environments that are that are outside the office, real world environments, and that's that enables uh, physicians and other care providers to provide um, assistance on areas relating to social determinants of health in ways that we've never before imagined. Right, understanding a home environment, for example, can can help a lot in the care of somebody, and um, and it's 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 real world evidence, right? It's it's real world care. It's it's not just in a doctor's office, and that's so important. For, for social determinants.
2: That, that yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't agree with that more. And, and that highlights the importance of privacy, you know, yeah. uh, even more because now through telehealth, physicians would be able to get gather more data the data that wouldn't be even possible to gather when you go to their office right so i i've mean, given an example of my own because i always jokingly when when, uh, when people ask me about you know these hacked healthcare data and the fact that they oh you know, it, it costs 500 dollars per each record i always jokingly tell them that i'm i'm uh, Putting my own health records for five dollars, and nobody has ever bid on it yet. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, you know that's, that's that's why I give examples of my. Own. So a couple uh, days ago, I had a telehealth visit, and my physician was asking about my diet, and I started to give uh, some answers to her. And now, when Ross started talking about you know these various ways that physicians can collect data, I was wondering. What if my doctor told me, hey, Niamh, can you open the fridge and turn the camera to your fridge so that I can see what you are really eating? Because, you know, my doctor asked me what you're eating. Oh, I'm eating really healthy. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I I only, you know... uh, eat uh, vegetables and fruit and some protein and no carbohydrates or no fat. And I exercise, and all. well, you know, uh, to, to some extent uh, that is true. To some extent it is driven by this uh, whole social desirability um, effect. You know, the same, the same thing that led many of these presidential polls to uh, overestimate the Uh, lead of uh, Biden over Trump, Uh, and one of the hypotheses that people are talking about is that this social desirability, you know, although you you may not even know the pollster, you say things that are socially desirable. And I think the same thing would happen to even a larger extent when you're talking with your physician, right? You say, oh, I'm doing all these great things that you know your doctor wants to hear. Right. You you tell your doctor that I I quit smoking where you haven't, you know, and and having a telehealth visit uh, would provide a lot of cues and signals to your doctor to see whether you're lying or not. To some extent, I actually believe that a telehealth is even more personal than an office visit because it happens in your private home. And you would be more likely to open up and tell things to your doctors that in a, in a very formal office setting, you may not be willing uh, to talk about.
0: I think that there's some benefits to that, although you got to be careful because, again, if we go back to people who are medically underserved, there may be some concern that if they do open their refrigerator, right, it may actually be telling that may have some other effect down the road in terms of health insurance coverage, et cetera. Plus, Niamh, you know, I'm on one of those diet health apps, and I swear I have to tell you, I'm very dishonest all the time, all the time. <laughs> in terms of- blocking what I really ate versus what I'm putting into the computer. You know, to both of you, I think this is such an important conversation that we had this morning, and I, I really think that it's one that we hope that this new president-elect will take seriously as they embrace health care. You know, oftentimes, legislators see technology as ancillary or marginal to the main issues that they're confronting, whether it's the economy, health care, employment, or education. When in reality, what we're seeing, and I think you both articulate it very clearly, is that technology is actually the cure or potentially something that can be leveraged to ensure that we get to better outcomes, whether that's a better well-being for individuals or quality care services as they're provisioned. With that in mind, this concludes our Tech Tank podcast. I could go on and on, but I think I'm going to have you both back as we get a little deeper into healthcare privacy. I want to thank Neam and Ross for sharing their thoughts with us about the future of telehealth adoption and utilization under President-elect Biden and beyond the pandemic, honestly. And you can find neam's work at brookings.edu and follow Ross through his work at Doctor On Demand. For those of you who are also listening to me for the first time, I focus on telehealth and you can find a recently co-authored paper on its uses and the state and federal barriers to adoption on the Brookings website. Please let us know if you have any reactions to this podcast and we look forward to hearing them and thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.